The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, when I, when I was in high school, I had a study for the HSC. This was the exam to end all exams. But how cruel to make us young people study. Exams should be for uni students, not us young people. When I was at university, I had to study for our final year medicine exams. Now, they were the exams to end all exams. But how cruel to make us uni students study. Exams should be for old people, not us uni students. When I was doing my PhD, we had to study for our postgrad exams. Now, they were the exams to end all exams. But how cruel to make us old people study. Exams should be for young people, not us old people with leaky brains. Exams, we all did them, we all survived them, but why? Because we live according to this simple formula. Study hard, get a good mark in the HSC, get into uni, get into uni, get a job, get a job and you'll be successful. Well, welcome to the forum. We are kicking off this year with a four-week series on the four keys to happiness. Key number one is today, success. Key number two will be next week, freedom. Then key number three will be love. And finally, key number four will be being true to yourself. And the purpose is to look at each one of these keys to happiness and to see what the Bible might say about this. And I'll be giving a 20-minute talk and there'll be some time for a question and answer afterwards. And today's key to happiness is success. Now, success can be defined as getting what we're looking for. And we're all looking for different things. Maybe we're looking for wealth, maybe we're looking for fame, maybe we're just looking for social standing and acceptance. And if we get what we're looking for, we have found success. And we've just heard a story from the Bible. Jesus tells a story about a man who does find success. This man, he plants some crop, then he gets a bumper crop, so much crop, he doesn't know what to do with it. So he says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my old barns and I'll build bigger barns. And now I will eat, drink, and I will be happy. So this man is successful. His business has succeeded. Boom! Now he can retire. He is successful. He can be happy because he has found success. But in this story, God calls the man a fool. And this is the part of the story I just don't get. Or why does God call this man a fool? He's done what any Asian parent tells an Asian to do. Work hard until you've got enough to live on. He's done what Tony Abbott tells us to do. Put away your money in super and then retire. So he's done what any Asian, any Aussie would do. He's done what you and I are doing right now. So why does God call this man a fool? Well, today's talk, we'll be looking at trying to answer that question, and we'll be looking at success. And there'll be three parts to today's talk. In the first part, I'll be looking at, well, what is success? In the middle part of the talk, I'll look at, well, the problem with success. And in the final part of the talk, I'll look at what the Bible has to say about success. What is success, the problem with success, and what the Bible has to say about success. So let's begin with the first part. What is success? And here I've got two things to say. 
Two things. What is success? Number one, success is based on a meritocracy. What is success? Number one, success is based on a meritocracy. A few years ago, I ran in the Sydney Half Marathon. And the Sydney Half Marathon is a two-lap race through Sydney. And I remember when I was running it, I was just about to finish my first lap when I noticed coming up behind me was a motorbike escort telling all of us to get out of the way because the leader was coming through about to finish his second lap and he was about to win the race. He, we hadn't even finished our first lap. He was about to finish his second lap. And the guy next to me running said, next to me running said, it's easy for him. He only has to run for half the time we do. Now, that leader went on to win the race and they gave him a medal because he had earned the medal. They didn't give me a medal because I didn't earn a medal. And that's what's called meritocracy. In a meritocracy, we have to earn our medals. In a meritocracy, we have to earn our degrees. We have to earn our wages. We have to earn our awards. And they are the medals we chase. They are not given to us. No, we have to earn them by being smarter, by being harder working, by being more disciplined than the person next to us. And these medals let us advance in society because our society is achievement-based. It's based on a meritocracy. And if we earn these things, then we become successful. We are a successful businessman if our business turns a profit. We're a successful scientist if our research paper gets published. We're a successful parent if our children grow up independent and of good character. So that's, that's the first thing about success. It's based on a meritocracy. What is success? Number two, success promises us a good life. Number two, what is success? Success promises us a good life. Now, these are my three boys, Toby, Cooper and Jonty, aged seven, five and three. And a few years ago, when we only had Toby and Toby was a baby, my wife and I went to Melbourne for a holiday. We stayed in a hotel. Every morning we had breakfast. And Toby sort of made friends with an older man sitting on another table. Every morning for breakfast, they'll make eyes, make faces at each other and make each other laugh. And they got on really well. And at the end of the week, when it was time to go, the older man got up from his table, he came over to our table, and he asked me, what's your son's name? And I said, his name is Toby. And the man just leant over, he put his hand on Toby's shoulder, and he said, Toby, have a good life. Which was such a nice thing to say. He was blessing my son and wishing upon him a good life. And as parents, we all want our children to have a good life. This is the future we hope our children will have. We want our children to have a house. We don't want them to be homeless. We want our children to have a job. We don't want them to be unemployed. We want our children to have a safe, reliable car. Not an old, unsafe car that always breaks down. We picture this as the good life for our children. And success promises us this good life. If we study hard, if we work hard, we will have the house we'll have the job, we'll have the car, we'll have the good life. And it's good for us to chase success. It gives us a reason to live, it gets us out of bed, it gives us the good life. And it's not just us who'll benefit, it's not just our children who'll benefit, all of society will benefit from our successes. 
If I'm a successful scientist and I discover a new antibiotic, society benefits. If I'm a successful musician, I produce music that lets society flourish and society benefits. If I'm a successful parent, I will raise a new generation of well-adjusted young people and society benefits from our successes. So what is success? Number two, success promises us, our children and society a better life, a good life. So that's the first part of the talk, what is success? One, it's based on meritocracy. Number two, it promises us a good life, a better life, and not just for us, but for society. Let's come to the middle part of the talk now. Well, what's the problem with this? What's the problem with success? And here I've got three things to say, three things. What's the problem with success? Number one, it leads to fear and insecurity. What's the problem with success? Number one, it leads to fear and insecurity. When I studied medicine, they told us it was a numbers game. 90% of you will pass, 10% of you will fail. And I thought that was great news, because in a room full of 100 med students, all I did was find 10 students dumber than me, and I knew I would pass their exam. So I remember in the middle of my second year physiology exam, I looked around the room, and I thought, yep, you're dumber than me, you're dumber than me, you're dumber than me, and I found 10 people who I thought was dumber than me, I thought, I am through, I passed this exam, it's a numbers game. But when the exam results came out, I failed. It turned out I was one of those 10 dumbest students. <laughs> and that's the problem with success. It's a numbers game. There's a line on this side of the line, you're the ones that pass. On this side of the line, you're the ones that fail. On this side of the line, you're the ones that succeed. But for everyone who succeeds by definition, there's someone who doesn't succeed. There is a line. And we never know which side of the line we're on. How much do we have to study before we pass the exam? How much do we have to work before we know if our job is secure? How much do we have to put away in super before we know we've got enough to retire on? How much is enough? And that's why we as parents push and push and push our kids. School is not enough now. We have to give them extra tutoring. And extra tutoring, how much is enough? Should they have one hour, two hours, three hours a week? And what do we get them tutoring? Should we do a maths? Well, if we do maths, we better do science as well. If we do science, we better do English as well. How much is enough before we know we've done enough? And it's the same with the man in the story. He soars up and says, eat, drink, and be happy. But does he have enough? What if he lives 10 more years than he expected? What if a GFC comes and destroys what he's stored up? What if his children waste away his wealth? How much is enough. So that's the first problem with success. It leads to fear and security because we never know how much is enough to succeed. Number two, the second problem with success is this. Number two, it doesn't give us the acceptance we're looking for. Number two, it doesn't give us the acceptance we're looking for. Now before Tony Abbott became Prime Minister of Australia, he was just another Aussie bloke. We went to the same university, and I actually once played in a rugby game against Tony Abbott. He was playing for Manly Fifths, and I was in Sydney Uni Fifths. I once surfed the same break as him on Manly Beach. But since then, I have stayed a nobody. But Tony Abbott has gone up 
and up and up in politics. And he's now Prime Minister of Australia. And this is the highest success he can have in politics. But many people don't like him. I was just in Newtown and I saw this poster of Tony Abbott making fun of him. So you can be successful, but people say nasty things about you. And that's the irony of success. In our society, success is how we get ahead. But in our society, people resent us for our success. The doctor with the Mercedes is successful, but someone will scratch her car because they resent her success. The business person with the waterfront mansion is successful, but his children will hate him. Raphael Nadell is successful. Last year he was ranked number one, but they booed him at the Australian Open final. Success is supposed to give us the recognition we deserve, the appreciation we need, the acceptance we long for, but instead it does the opposite. People whisper behind our backs. People resent our success and people cheer when we fail. So success is meant to give us respect, but it's a grudging respect. It means we're somebody, but somebody that no one likes. It gives us acceptance, but it's a shallow acceptance that lasts only while the success lasts. So that's the second problem with success. It actually doesn't give us the acceptance we're longing for. Number three, the third problem with success is this. It might not give us the happiness we're looking for either. Number three, success might not give us the happiness we're looking for. Now, I'm a crossword nerd. I love doing my Sydney Morning Herald crossword. I rip it out. I take it around with me all day. So any spare moment, I'm trying to fill out my Sydney Morning Herald crossword. But here's the funny thing with crosswords. When I finish the crossword, it's a bittersweet moment because now what do I do? The crossword is finished. What am I going to do for the rest of the day? Success is like climbing a mountain. Great while you're climbing. But what do you do when you get to the top? And what do you do when you get to the top and you realise there's no one else here with me? Friedrich Nietzsche called this the melancholy of all things completed. The melancholy of all things completed. When you find success instead of happiness, you will find melancholy. In 1991, Australia won the Rugby World Cup and Nick Farr Jones was the captain of Australia and this is the highest success you could ever get, captaining your country to a World Cup win. And Far Jones was interviewed many years later by the BBC and they asked him, what was that feeling when you finally got that trophy and you held it up in front of the world? And Far Jones replied, well, there was a sense of melancholy. After working your butt off and realising that this had been the focus of your life and it doesn't get any better than that, there's a sense of, is that all? Is this as good as it gets? And it leaves you in a vacuum. And we too will feel that same melancholy, that same vacuum when we finally finish our postgrad exams, when we get the partnership in the law firm, or our kids are finally raised and they leave us with the empty home. Melancholy, nothing left to climb and no further worlds to conquer and nothing was there when you get there. So that's a third problem with success. It actually might not give us the happiness we thought it would give us. Let's come now to the final part of the talk. Well, what does the Bible say about success? What does the Bible say about success? 
And here we've got two things to say, and these come from two clues in the story that we just heard. Two clues from the story. Clue number one. Clue number one. Success is not a meritocracy. Number one. Success is not a meritocracy. And the clue comes in verse 16. And it's very subtle. It goes like this. Verse 16. The ground produced for the man a good crop. That's a real nudge, nudge, wink, wink way of saying God gave this man his crop. God gave this man his success. Yes, the man worked hard. He planted seeds. He watered them. But in the end, he couldn't go to the ground and say grow and make the plants come up, God made the crop come up for him. And this means you and I can work as hard as we want for our success, but in the end, many of the factors are out of our control. Do we have parents who can support us financially and emotionally? Will we be in good health on the day of our post-grad exams? What if the wrong questions come up in the exam? What if our country is a military coup and our savings are wiped out? What if floods come and destroy my business? What if my wife's health fails and now I have to look after her and not the business? What if one of my children is born with a learning disability? So our success is actually much less based on what we can do and it's much more based on what God does or doesn't do for us. In other words, borrowing from words from one of my Bible college lecturers, success is a gift, not gain. It's a gift from God, not something we gain from our hard work. Gift, not gain. So yes, we still have to work hard, just like the farmer did, but in the end it depends on whether or not God chooses to bless our work with fruit. Success is a gift, not gain. And so we're successful... We should be humble and thank God for our success. If we're not successful, then we should trust God and say, okay, that's okay. Maybe you've got a different plan than what I thought. But in the end, we just have to trust God that He knows what's best for us. So maybe we won't get the marks we need in the postgraduate exams. Maybe we won't get the job we work for. Maybe we won't get the trophy family to show off. But that's okay because that's what God wants for us. And His will is always what's best. So we redefine success now. Success is what God chooses to give us rather than what we gain. And this frees us up from the fear and insecurity of trying to be successful in our own eyes and in the eyes of other people. That's number one, what the Bible has to say about success. Success is actually not a meritocracy. It's a gift from God, not something we gain. Number two, clue number two, success is to be right with God. True success, number two, is to be right with God. And the second clue comes in verse 21. It's a punchline that Jesus gives. This is how it will be for anyone who stores up for themselves, but is not rich toward God. In other words, true success is to be rich towards God. And I think that this is a metaphor for having a rich, flourishing relationship with God. In the same way, that we're meant to have a rich, flourishing relationship with our earthly father, our dad, we're meant to have a rich, flourishing relationship with our heavenly father, God. A few years ago at a wedding, I sat next to someone I knew from high school. And he said, oh, my high school days 
were very hard for me. What you need to know, when I was in high school, my dad and my mum were going through rough times and they were divorcing. And my dad was a surgeon, so he tried to keep me happy by giving me lots of money. So every day he'd give me obscene amounts of pocket money, $20, $50, $100, but he never spent any time with me. And the guy said to me, my dad didn't get it. I didn't want the money, I wanted him. I wanted a dad. I didn't want his riches, I wanted him to be rich towards me. And it's the same with us. Maybe we think to be successful is to find riches that we can give to God. But in the end, what we really need is to be rich to God. Just like we need a dad to be rich to us, we need to be rich to our Heavenly Father, our God. But how do we get rich towards this God? Is it an exam to study for, a mountain to climb, a trophy to win, a medal to earn? Do we have to gain his favour, earn his attention? No, because that would be a meritocracy. No, being rich towards God is a gift from God. God gives it to us by giving us Jesus, by giving us his spirit, and by giving us the status of being one of his children. So today we have looked at success. The first key to happiness. If we find success, we will be happy. And we looked at, well, what is success? We've looked at problems without usual definition of success. And finally, we've looked at what the Bible has to say about success. It's a gift from God. And also, to be truly successful, we need to be rich towards God. And the man in the story was a fool because he lived as if there were no God. He had gained his success, as if he had gained his success by his hard work alone, and he did not need to be rich towards the God who gave him his success. So where does this leave you and me? Well, God actually wants us to be successful. It's just that his version of success might be different from our version. And at the end of the day, there's only one version that will count. Now in this story, God said to the man, You fool, tonight your life will be taken from you. Now, who will gain all the riches you have stored up for yourself? And you know, there will be a day when we also die. There will be a day when we go to the doctor and the x-ray does show a spot. When the blood tests do come back positive. And the doctor just might have to use the cancer word on us. There will be a day when we die. This is the part of life we cannot control. But there is one part of life we can control... And that is, were we rich towards God? I have a friend who's a doctor, and he works in a small country town. And because it's such a small town, he knows everyone in the town, both as doctor and friend. And so before any operation, he says to the person, before you operate, as your doctor, I need to tell you, there are risks. You may die from this procedure. And now as your friend, I need to tell you, before the operation, you need to get right with both your family and with God. There will be a day we stand before God and there will be a version of success that will count. And that is whether we were rich towards God or not. And if we were rich towards God, we worship the giver and not the gift that gives us, then on that day we will truly be happy. The first question actually somebody sent while you were speaking is you were talking about Jesus a fair bit but, and also the father-son relationship oh. there. Was Christ, or Jesus, successful in as much as his objectives that he was sent to fulfill? Oh, okay. So the question was, Jesus and God the Father, so there's a no, Father-Son thing happening there? Was, Jesus, 
was Jesus successful, when he was successful, in, insofar as the objectives that he was sent to fulfill? Wow, okay. Was Jesus successful in terms of the objectives that he was sent to fulfill? Well, wow, okay, that's a really good question. And I guess it all comes down to what were his objectives. And the Bible, the more you read the Bible, the more you realise it's such a multifaceted, rich um, document that uses so many different metaphors and types of language to explain what Jesus' mission is. Um, and so it's like if I'd explain my relationship with my wife, what, what, what is... So, okay, I'll, I'll give you another example. My wife and I love to do date night. We do date night once a week. And if you're not careful, even date night itself can become a rut. Like, where do you want to go for dinner? I don't know, she'll do Thai or Greek Thai. Uh, what do you want to do for movies? Should we do James Bond or Romantic Bond? James Bond, okay. And anything, okay, it was just a formula. And if we say, was that a successful date night or not? We don't know. Well, what's the definition of successful date night? Thai or Greek, James Bond or Romantic Comedy? So you need to take a step back and say, well, what are the objectives of date night? You need to sit back and say, and yeah, multiple objectives. Sometimes it's just like, oh, we just need adult conversation. And we're just going to need kids interrupting us. So it might be adult conversation. It might be just a chance to oh, recharge after a busy day. Or it might be a chance to have some romance, kindle the fire that was once there. And so you can realise on a day night, you have multiple objectives. And then at the end of the night, you say, hey, we did have adult time. I do feel recharged physically, emotionally. And hey, I'm feeling romantic as well. Hey, successful date night. And so what was Jesus' mission? Well, it's multifaceted as well. Uh, the Bible says he will be called Jesus because he has come to save his people from their sins. So that was one objective. Another objective was to glorify the Father. And when I was in America during the Sydney Olympics. And Kathy Freeman, when she won the 400 metres and the 200 metres or whatever it was, something everyone in America was talking about, Australia. Like, they all saw it. And, they, and so Kathy Freeman glorified Australia. Everyone's talking about Australia. And Jesus' objective is to glorify God. Because of Jesus, people are going to glorify God. They're going to talk about God. Another objective was, they said, he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Somehow he's going to bring God with us. And if we trust Jesus following, God is with us, uh, not just watching us, but he's actually in us. Jesus, his spirit will be in you, living for you and empowering you. So there's just at least three objectives in Jesus' life. One, to save his people from his sins. Two, to glorify the Father. And three, to be God with us. And in that sense, he was successful. Yes. There you go. Great. All right, next question. How come there are atheists, or those who don't believe mm -hmm. in God, that are successful mm. and blessed by God, yes. even though they don't believe in Him? Okay, so how come there are atheists who are successful, blessed by God, even though they don't believe in Him? Yes, because God is a God of... Why, wow, He's so... There's a psalm, Psalm 104, that says, you know, God didn't just make one type of fish. He made thousands of types of fish. Uh, he didn't just give us grass to eat. He gave us bread to eat. You know, and it's just like there's a luxury and extravagance built into God. And this is what's called general creation blessing from God. And God says, everyone can have this. Everyone. It doesn't, care. It doesn't matter what you believe about me, whether you believe I exist, uh, or whether you believe, whether you love me, you don't love me, whether you worship me, you don't worship me. And Jesus is an amazing verse that says, God sends rain on everyone. Whether you're a good person or a bad person, whether you believe in him or don't believe in him. So God has this general creation blessing, which we all enjoy. Life, 
love, marriage, sex, romance, having children, and even success, the ground will produce a good crop for us. So there's a general creation blessing, and God's very happy for all of us to have it, but what he'll love for us is to enjoy it in the context of relationship with him. I'll explain, like, um, there's a verse in the Bible, Psalm 104, going back to that psalm, where it says, it doesn't just say God um, gives us bread to sustain our hearts, he gives us oil to make us feel good about ourselves, some makeup, cosmetics, product in here. Imagine an Asian with that product. Thank God for products as an Asian man. The third thing he gives us is wine. He gives us wine to gladden our hearts. He gives us alcohol. It actually says, okay, here's water, that'll hydrate you, but hang on, have some wine. And so if our fear of God is that somehow by loving, worshiping God, we will miss out. That's wrong. No, we get more pleasure, more joy from worshiping God. He actually wants to enjoy his creation. But here's the thing. I love beer, I love brewing beer, I'm a brewer. When does beer become a problem? When I drink alone. It's meant to be a social drink. I'm meant to drink it with people, with friends, we're social creatures. I'm meant to have it with a friend. Same, same with movies and eating a steak and travel. Have you noticed a movie by yourself oh, isn't quite right? It's alright every now and then, but not every time. When you eat a steak, it's never nice in a restaurant by yourself, is it? And if you buy yourself suddenly Instagram the steak. So everyone knows, hey, I'm eating a snake, steak. And, and, and then you go to Paris by yourself. Oh, this is, and you have a coffee, this is a bit sad. So you Facebook, hey everyone, I'm having a coffee in Paris. We need it to be shared. And what God is saying, hey, I'm giving you success. But I want you to enjoy it in a relationship with me. Not alone, but with the giver who gave you this gift. And so I guess if we don't worship this God, we miss out on that, that context of relationship where we enjoy the giver as well as the gift. Well, actually, that kind of goes to the next question. Is what do we need to do to provide enough riches to God? Oh, what do we have to do to provide enough? What do we have to do to provide enough riches to God? Well, I guess what we got to understand with God primarily, He's a relational person, a personal person. So we flip around and say, "What? Well, how do I do? What do I do to be rich towards my Son?" And this year, I am. Last year, I started taking Cooper, my five-year-old, out on daddy dates. On daddy dates. And so I might take them to the swimming pool. But it always ends where I took them to a toy shop. And so it got to this age where Cooper thought Daddy Date meant I was going to buy him a toy from the toy shop. And he always goes, Dad, when are you next going to do Daddy Date? I need another toy. And I was like, Cooper, you don't get it. It's not what I do for you that makes it Daddy Date. It's just that we're relating. We're spending time with each other. That's what it means to be rich towards each other. Not me doing a ritual for you. It's the same. How do we become rich? towards God. It's not so much doing, rather than being. So you are my God, I worship you, your spirit is in me, your spirit makes me alive, and you live for me, and I live for you. That's what makes it a, a rich relationship with God. Not so much what we do, not the rituals, but just being. Right. Well, actually, all these dovetail right, right into each other. So the next question goes, we want our parents to spend time with us. Mm. How do we know that our God, uh, that God, our Heavenly Father, is showing His care and time, showing and time with us? Okay, so we show our love to our wife by spending time with her. How do we know God is caring for us by spending time with us? Yeah, is that is that the us. question? Yeah, I guess. Oh, okay. So, so the the husband wife analogy is fantastic because what's happened since the Industrial Revolution and modernity is we've had this false 
divisions of our life that never used to exist before. So the whole work-family thing is, a, is only a recent innovation. Work and family used to be the same thing once upon a time. Another recent division and recent innovation is the whole sacred-secular divide. Uh, as if this is God time, this is not God time, this is worship time with God, this is not worship time with God. So we, we, we do it in helpful and unhelpful ways. So, you know, some of us like a daily moment where we read the Bible, so that's our sacred time. And that's very good, but does that mean the rest of our time is not sacred time? What I would say is, that's a really good question, and if all we have are our usual categories of work, family, uh, and also sacred, secular, public, private, it's really hard to see how God can spend time with us and how we can spend time with God. Our only time with God will be when we read the Bible and pray and go to church and we think, well, that's only 1% of my waking life and is that the only time God spends with us? But no, once we realise all of it is time with God, and both um, sacred and secular, private and public and work and family, somehow God is with us in all those moments. So again, being rather than doing any other questions from the floor or anything? You want to ask? Yep. Why does the Lord love sharing creation? The question is why does the Lord? Why does the Lord of the world love sharing creation? The question is why does a lot of the world not share in creation gifts? Are oh, you going to have to specify a bit more yeah. stuff? Oh, okay. So why aren't people in the world sharing the creation gifts from God? So if God blesses us so, so much in abundance, why are we not sharing this? I can't answer for the world, but I can guess what stops me from sharing. Again, this idea that success is a meritocracy. And so if I have this, hey, I earned it. Whereas if I could teach myself to rethink it, now what I have is a gift from God, because there's so many things I couldn't control. I have to realise, wow, um, God has blessed me with this and I need to be generous with what he's given me. So is, is, does that help answer? So we think of things as what we've earned. It's harder to be generous in sharing it with it, whereas we see these things as given to us by God, it would be easier to share it. They've done a study that uh, the more you make, the less proportion of what you make you give to charity. So somehow the richer you are, the more immune you are to giving. Somehow, maybe the richer we become, the more we feel like, hey, I've earned this, this is mine. Why can't you earn your share? I did my bit. I studied hard. I worked hard. Shouldn't you just do the same? But we can talk more. That's not quite the question you're asking. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.